Uh, so I just wanted to give you a wee bit of a recap of where we are in the series. So this is the last day, last uh, Sunday anyway, in a three-part series. So if you were here for the start of it, Ryan set up this one, room 101 kind of stealing really from the TV show where we would set up things which we disliked about culture, lies we told about God, uh, and lies we tell about ourselves. So it was this idea that we set up lies and then hopefully knock them down and bring light and hope into that conversation. So the first week was whenever Ryan was talking about lies we believe about God. And one of the ones that we do really well is we, we add things onto God where we say that God is a God of love, but... And one of the lies that Rand knocked down so eloquently for us was, it's God is a God of love, period. And just remember not to add anything else to that. And then Steph, one of her points last week was about lies we believe about ourselves. So she was taking off things and she was looking at lies, the lie that you're in control of our own lives. That was one of them. And how she brought freedom for us to be able to walk into that as children of God. So this morning we're going to be dispelling lies that culture tells us. So let's just get stuck in because to be honest with you, there's a lot of lies that culture tells us. But there's one that I probably hate the most. But hate's such a strong word, so I'm going to use dislike instead. Okay? Strongly dislike if you want to do it. But... There's one thing I dislike in, in life, and it's bad design. I'm not a great graphic designer, I know that. I know where my limits lie, but I hate bad design. I'm drawn to aesthetics. I'm the kind of person that will watch a movie and notice if something changes in the movie from one scene to the next and call it out and be like, that shouldn't have happened. They didn't have continuity there. I'm that kind of guy who's probably really annoying to sit and watch a movie with. But... I like things to be proper. I like them to be aesthetically pleasing and have continuity. So if I pick a bottle of wine, if I'm coming around your house and I pick a bottle of wine, I'm probably going to pick the label that looks the best. I have no other idea. But my idea and thought process is if they put the thought into the branding, you know, the wine's probably good as well. Maybe that's not the best approach, but I'll let you taste it and figure it out, okay? But... The one thing that I really dislike when it comes to the line of branding is Christian merchandise, okay? Can't stand it at all. I think I might even use the word hate here, but the ones that put the massive crosses on the back, you know those hoodies that people walk around? I actually see those as targets for my saving saving remarks and comments about that branding, but whenever you butcher good branding like this, okay, I think a part of me dies inside, okay, when I say that. So there was other ones like Jesus Christ and the Coca-Cola kind of script. You'll never thirst again, okay? I I couldn't show you that because I would have to finish at that point, okay? But bad branding, it's not nice. It's not great. But if I could entomb that into room 101 right now with any, any contention, that would be done. But the one thing that I probably dislike most about Christianity, about this journey that we're on, is the question that's always asked, and if you ask me this question, I will not answer you this morning, is how is your spiritual life? I hate that question. It's a question that growing up through church, you've probably been asked before. You might even have asked it yourself. And it's because we sometimes get into it 
And it's out of like just plain easiness. Sometimes it's out of tradition. It's because what we do, it separates it out. It makes it easy for people to slip into that. And I think the one thing that we've come uh, to believe is this lie. Lie number one, it's either sacred or spiritual. That there is a divide in our lives between sacred and spiritual. And you may have heard it spiritual or sacred. doesn't really matter. It's sacred, spiritual, same difference, okay, in that one. But I think that church culture has also uh, helped make us believe this lie. And it's embellished it because it, it separates out life maybe into sacred things, the stuff that matter to God, such as going to church, praying, reading your Bible, uh, worshiping God, reading, or basically whatever you do in your relationship with God, that is seen as sacred, spiritual, what really matters to God. The rest doesn't really seem to matter. You just get on with that in your everyday week. That's the lie that I want to hopefully knock down today. And you can see it too. But this secular idea is that it's everything else. And if you were to add up everything in the week that you would put down as spiritual. So if you add it up, let's, let's be really holy, okay? And pretend that you get to the pr- early pre-morning gathering for prayer before church. So you get to that and then you get to church. That's four hours, we'll say, on a Sunday. Then you read your Bible every day. You pray. Let's give you an R for that if you're doing well, okay? So that makes up about 11 hours of your week. 11 hours out of 168 hours. You can see the Maz geek in me coming out right now. But that's 6.5% of your life. 6.5% of your life is spiritual, or so we tag it as. That's the only bit that apparently matters to God. So what about the 93.5%? when you decide to binge out at Netflix late one night and work through right until about one o'clock in the morning. Or whenever you spend time as a family, when you go to the gym, when you're walking the dog, or when you're having a meal with friends. What about everything else that we do? What about the mundane, the regular? What about when you're changing nappies instead of changing the world? What about those times? The problem is we've made this distinction. We've made a distinction between spiritual, and secular. And we categorize it into this, these two pots. And I want to home in on a fifth of your week right now. I want to home in on something that takes up 22% roughly of your time, and that's your work. And you might be employed, you might not be, you might not be at that stage yet, you might be looking to get to that stage. There's something that we can still apply to our everyday lives in this idea of work, volunteering, being a part of something bigger than yourself. So another question I remember being asked when, was when I was growing up is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Everybody asked that question? Yeah? So what do you want to be when you grow up? I would remember thinking, firefighter. Pretty good option there. Happy with that. I remember wearing the helmet, running around with the hose. I think it was just mainly because I could soak everybody and get away with it, okay? That was, the, that was my thought process behind it. But the more as I'm involved with youth work, the more I'm involved with uh, teenagers and so on, this, this conversation of what do you want to be when you grow up isn't really that healthy. It's not really the right conversation, the right question to be asking. And again, church, this sacred-secular divide has played into this 
this concept. Because we celebrate those who are called to pastorate roles. We celebrate those in full-time ministry, whatever that means. That's a whole different conversation. And we, we think that we highlight those roles and we put them on pedestals, really. That should never happen. That should not be the case because we diminish the value placed on every other job. We diminish the value that each one of you have been called to as you carry out your daily nine to five. I'm here to say that that is important. God delights in that. God views that as spiritual, sacred, and important to him this morning. If you look in the Old Testament, uh, you just look through, you'll see that there's no actual word for spiritual. Can't be found. Because in the Hebrew culture, everything was seen as spiritual. So the word didn't exist. But yet we brought that into our lives. Instead of sacred and spiritual, we should see as life is spiritual. Everything that we do is spiritual. Everything, there should be no division between sacred and spiritual. So whether you hear off the back of results, whether if you're holding down a job just to pay the bills, whether you're still in full-time education, whether you volunteer, whatever you do, if you're work, like in your dream job right now, God wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. He wants you to be on this journey as we walk with him in the way. He wants to permeate every part of your everyday ordinary, every aspect influencing and every facet of our lives involving Jesus. But that still leaves the question that maybe you've still been asking from an early age. What's God's calling on my life? What does it look like? And so that question, as I said, maybe there's another lie that comes with it, the lie that you can be anything you want to be. And I think with that lie, there's been coming this heaviness on children, teenagers to perform in school, to reach beyond that they can actually manage, to push themselves further and farther. And it might come from that American culture of you can be anybody you want to be. Steve Jaws' mentality, if you just work hard enough, you'll get there. And it can sometimes come from the best intentions of parents as well that just want to see their children go further, farther, better than they ever have before. It's a good thing. But sometimes we place expectations on the shoulder of our teenagers, our children, and our youth as well. And actually, I want to just say that sometimes the limitations that we have on our, in ourselves can be freeing. Sometimes the weight can trip us up and make us actually sadder than what we need to be because we'll never maybe reach that. So the freedom, there's freedom in limitation. But maybe you've struggled with that concept of calling, vocation. Maybe you come disillusioned with failure. Maybe you're looking for that Damascus Road experience where Paul was stopped dead in his tracks and a voice came from heaven to say, Saul, change your name to Paul, okay, kind of idea, but I want you to stop doing what you're doing. I want you to stop your job, stop persecuting me, and this is the new job I've got for you, making disciples rather than killing my disciples. We want that moment when God steps into our lives and tells us, gives us a plan, step-by-step guide for what he's looking us to do. What if that never comes? What if that shining light never stops us in its tracks? 
what if we're just going to be paying the bills instead of living our dream? What God is asking us to be, what God is, what maybe God is saying, let me actually rephrase that question. What God is, what's God's calling in your life should maybe be rephrased as how has God hardwired you? How has God made you? What are your passions? What are your desires? How has God gifted you and your abilities? The word vocation, okay, comes from the word vocado, which means voice. So simply put, what's the voice that you bring to the table? John Mark Comer has a lovely quote in his book, finding your calling in life is finding your voice that cuts over all the din and the drone of the seven billion people on earth, the tune and tone that only you can bring to the table. See, your voice is unique, so therefore your calling is unique. So find your voice, find the tune, the tone that brings you to the table, or what you bring to the table. Find your gifting, your passions, your desires, creativity, your ideas, your drives. Discovering your voice, pinpointing the unique abilities and limitations that have been placed in your life, figuring out how you turn that into a living, something that may take time, it may, need, it may never actually even be a viable option for work, but it could be something which you delight in that you do as a hobby where you find joy, where you find life outside of your nine to five job. But let's look at this concept of work. If you turn to Genesis chapter two, we can see that work is important to God. It's not just a secular thing, but work here we see the first time it's mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter two. It is important to God. And if you think about it, Jesus was a carpenter. He swung a hammer for so many years of his life. How could it not matter to God as well? But Genesis chapter two, we see a more in-depth description of God forming man who was an image bearer of God. From the dust to the ground, he made man breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 15, here we see work being mentioned for the first time. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So this Hebrew word for work can also be translated in two different ways. It can be translated as service or as worship. So if we take those words service and worship and put them in place, substitute it in place of work, maybe our viewpoint of work changes slightly. Maybe our aspect of what work should look like becomes slightly different because work is service and worship to God. It changes it from the secular and puts it back into the, the spiritual life because everything is spiritual. We stop seeking work as something we have to go to or endure or just show up to pay the bills. And we start seeing work for the true value and beauty that God has placed on it. And you say, yes, Matt, it might be easy for you who love your job and so on, but maybe for me, I don't really like my job. I just show up because I have to. What about that for me then? How does that fit? How can I worship while I do the things that I don't like to do? where I have to do the meaningless tasks of going in person paper. If that's your viewpoint, you're probably not the only person here who has that view of work is a means to an end. But God's calling us to do something more than that. 
Steve Wiley challenged us to find pockets of joy in our routine a couple of Sundays ago in your everyday life. So find pockets of joy in the routine of your everyday life. I want to extend that into your workplace as well. There was a guy called Brother Lawrence who lived in a monastery as a monk, obviously, and he would have to do the continuous uh, monotonous task of washing dishes every single day. Now, to me, washing dishes does not sound like my dream job. I'm sure you'll agree. It's not really that kind of enjoyable work. But what he said was that our sanctification, becoming more like Christ, does not depend on as much as changing our activities as it does in changing our viewpoint, as it does in doing them for God rather than for ourselves. The fact of the matter is, he had a monotonous, mundane job, but yet he still found the moments when he made it where God impacted and came into that moment. He still invited God into that uh, presence, his presence into that time whenever he was going about his everyday ordinary. And whenever we grasp that mindset, when we grasp his attitude and approach to work, things start to become different for us. We no longer see it as a place where we're just working, where we're showing up, collecting a pay packet and going again. But we see as these opportunities where we can steward God's presence in our workplace, where we can actually invite our king into our his kingdom and into the everyday ordinary where we, where we work. The second thing that I want to look at, the second word is also in Genesis chapter two, verse 15. And it's the word take care of. It says in the garden, if even man put him right there, she'd work it and take care of it. And this word take care of can also mean guard. So it's to stand up to protect creation, basically is what God was calling Adam to do. So although the first man, Adams, wasn't technically an environmentalist, he was standing up for creation and, and was probably all things green. I'm not here to chat about whether you should have glass or plastic, okay? Or like farm to table times or anything like that. That's not what I'm doing today. Though environmentalists, we should care about creation. But this word shamar, this word guard or protect can also be translated as develop. I think it makes a wee bit more sense of the passage that came before it in Genesis chapter two, verses 10 to 14, when we take it as guard, or try to develop instead of guard. Because when we read it as that, it makes sense of verse 12 here. We see that a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, from there, there was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, okay, where the, there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx were also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur and the four rivers and the fourth river is the Euphrates. If you've ever read that chapter, chapter two, you probably skipped over that. It's easy to. There's a lot of hard looking words there, which I don't know if I pronounce correctly. You can tell me, actually don't tell me later, it's fine. But you can see that 
In that middle of that section right there is this small statement in verse 11 and 12 where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. It's easy to be be missed. But you see the land that God produced It goes a wee bit deeper than just saying it was good. It's saying it was packed full of raw resources, raw materials. Man could mine them. Man could uh, use them and actually equip himself and his community for something better than just a garden. See, God was calling Adam to build something bigger than himself. Not just to come, show up in the garden, name the animals, cut the grass, trim the trees, and get on with life as perfect and idealistic as that sounds, God was calling man to something bigger. He was calling him to build a garden, but build a community, build a culture that was bigger than just himself. And that's what we're doing. We're rearranging the raw materials in God's creation in such a way where we're working, in such a way where we bless the people and we allow them to to thrive and to flourish in life rather than just survive. So what you guys are doing in your everyday ordinary work, whether that be pushing paper, whether it be doing a spreadsheet and bringing order to chaos and numbers, or whether it's actually showing up in somebody's life where you sit and you work through something where you know that they're in pain or they need help, and you're just there to support and to love them well. That is bringing order to chaos. That is being in the small details. That is harboring those resources and mining them in such a way that allows other people to flourish and thrive. Last week, we blessed the kids as they went back to school. I know it sounds as if I'm gonna objectify these guys as small, or not small, but as uh, resources. But they are that. They're that in human forms. We have teachers, we've got social workers here, we've got people who do amazing work with children. And what they are doing there is they are tapping into the raw resources of this land. They're tapping into the next cultural uh, developers, the next people who are going beyond us, further than us. And when they get to invest and get to equip the next generation, we know that we need Uh, so much more than ourselves. We need people to take on and to develop this conversation and this life that we have with Jesus and to bring it to culture. And what happens with those teachers, social workers, anybody who plays a role with children, they get to invest, mold, shape, equip the next generation. I would like at some point that if you know someone here this morning, break bread with those guys. Anybody who has any kind of deal with inspiring the next generation, go bless them and break bread with them today. Because that's a hard job. Because you, if you were stuck in a classroom with 30 children screaming at you, I struggle with two sometimes. But if you're stuck in that classroom with 30 children screaming at you, or if you're working through a complex case to try and bring life and hope into a family situation, encourage them because they're not doing their everyday ordinary monotonous routine. What they're doing is they're stewarding the presence of Christ as they stand in that classroom. 
as they pray over the children, as they invest into them. You see, the fact of the matter is that job and no other job is just a secular job. Everything is spiritual when you see it through the eyes and lens that God sees. So bless them, break bread with them, and just, just, just love them well this morning. And love each other well, obviously, as well, because I don't want to highlight too much one job and knock another one down. That's not the important part of today. But when we, when we see that photographers, artists, designers blending shapes and, and, and creation and scenes and lines and colors and fabrics together to create something beautiful, something that doesn't have a cross on its back, okay, or anything terrible like that, we see beauty in that. That emulates and actually points to a creator because we are co-creators with Christ, with God. So the fact of the matter is, whenever we do creativity in all of its beauty, we are imitating the Father because we're made in his image. So the fact of the matter is, no matter what sphere of life that you work in, no matter what job you show up in, what we're looking for is that you imitate and allow God to show up in that job with you. So as we ask and we go about our, as we go about our everyday ordinary, ask God to show up, ask God to look for those pockets of routine, those dishwashing opportunities, and ask God to show up in such a way where he brings life and light into those places with you, through you, that you can actually show, you can be patient with other people. Maybe it's you pray in the quiet moments. Maybe it's you worship at your computer, you speak with integrity. It could be as simple as that, where you stand up and you tell the truth in your office place, where you're known for that, where you go beyond what's asked of you. When you're kind and generous, not only to people you like, but to the guys that are hard to love. We're called to develop. We're called to mine those raw resources and nurture a space where the spiritual collides with secular. That's life. That's your voice. That's your vocation. That is your service and worship to God. Because everything is spiritual. There's no such thing as secular and secular anymore. Everything is spiritual. I want to look at lie number two. You'll be glad to know I've only got two lies this morning, so it's all good. But lie number two is busyness is best. Busyness is best. And there's a guy by the name of William Penn who wrote a quote, and I kind of think he looks like the Quaker Oats kind of guy on the box, okay? Maybe it's that just look that he had around the 1700s that was popular back then, but time is what we want most and use worst. Time is what we want most and use worst. I'm just going to call it, your timekeeping isn't great this morning, okay? I know there was a few... Uh, things on, on the way where the lane closures and so on, but we always seem to be busy. We always have this concept of time that we have loads of it, and then when it comes to getting out the door, trying to drag two kids out the door as well, makes it difficult because there's always something you've forgotten. I know it's easy to think that we've got a time in abundance, but actually, that's a lie in itself. But the last 10 years, there's been a progression of uh, technology, where we've had phones, iPads, all smartwatches. So basically, everything can be programmed. Everything can be organized. You can be con uh, contacted or contacted at any time of the day. There's no place where you probably can't get signal in Belfast. You're always on, always switched on, and always struggling 
to be organized, even in the height of organization. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to sometimes be focused and not to procrastinate because you've got Netflix, you've got Amazon Prime, you've got uh, instant messaging, Instagram, where it always takes and steals your time away from you. And I've just installed quality time on my phone. And to be honest, I'm kind of cheating because I've got a work phone and a personal phone. So I install it on my personal phone and use my work phone more. So I've got like an hour's use only on my work or my personal phone. So I think I'm doing really well, but whenever I look at my battery life consumption in this, it's not looking that great, okay? So I'm kind of cheating myself here, but I encourage you to, to download something or look at your, your apps and see where your time's going to in your phone. You'll be surprised at how much it drains, not your battery, but your life and your time away. But we get this idea that we have lots of time and busyness is best. Because we live in a culture that's addicted to pings and things, it eats away at us, whether we realize it or not. One of the crazies things that we're experiencing as a family is this notion of being busy. It's the expectation that you'll attend all these different things that are for children. So for example, if uh, we've slowly become the, a taxi service for our children, ferrying them from one thing to the next, it always seems to be, the, what's, what's happening next week? Okay, right, we'll try and get to that. And it's great. But it seems if you haven't mastered a foreign, if your child hasn't mastered a foreign language, if they haven't actually completed and earned the badge in the 400-meter butterfly, uh, if they haven't actually, what's uh, the other one there, sorry, if they haven't uh, performed in a symphony, wrote their own symphony, performed in the Nutcracker, by, all by the time they're age five, then you feel as a parent. I don't know if you felt that or if you're going through that, but what a load of rubbish. But at times, it, it feeds into this idea of, of worry that we don't have enough time. And you lie awake at night, maybe working through what the next day looks like, where you've organized the packed lunches. See, see, going back to school, it was hilarious to see. I loved it. Because you saw the moms and the dads who have their kids lined up at the door, and it's a lovely sight. And then you saw the lunch prep preparation, okay, the night before, where the bags were packed, the lunches were made, everything was done in order to make sure that that process of getting out the door was as smooth as possible. And your alarm maybe doesn't go off. You wake up in a fluster, a panic of knowing there's 101 things you need to do that day, and now you've got even less time to do them in. Maybe your attitude and your, your love towards the person that you wake up next to beside wasn't one of love, but one of Quick, get it sorted now. I don't know. That would never happen in our household. Uh, but it's easy to become worn out, frazzle, frazzled with the, with the expectation of life. And we treat the weekend as something where we catch up with everything else we didn't get to do in the week. Maybe that sounds familiar. But I want to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Here we see the story of Mary and Martha and the frustration busyness can bring in life. So as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had said. But Martha, who was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. 
you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. See, when we look at this story, we see that Jesus is ultimately calling Mary into discipleship with him. We see the fact that an invitation has been extended to Mary to sit at the feet of the rabbi, something that would have been so unheard of in that culture because it was a position for men only. So in Mary's, in Martha's busyness, she misses out on an invitation that is countercultural with Jesus. She misses out on sitting at Jesus' feet. And don't get me wrong, hospitality is an amazing thing. Hospitality is such an incredible thing in the Jewish culture. Hospitality is key. But she missed out on something more amazing, time with Jesus. And it's easy to criticize Martha here. It's easy to say that Martha is in the wrong, but actually we're probably more like Martha than we want to admit. Where we're struggling to make time for Jesus. We're rushing from one thing to the next because they're full of good things in our lives, things which are pleasing and God-like, but actually take the place of Jesus. And with just like Martha, we can miss the point. At times we fail to make time for the best thing, Jesus, because we're so busy with other things. Kevin DeYoung has a quote where he says this, if we're busy in a hundred good things, even great things, gospel things, glorious things, but don't sit at the feet of Jesus, then we're busy with the wrong things. What is your life full of? Good things, gospel things? But if we're not sitting at the feet of Jesus, then they're still the wrong things. We need to orientate our lives and center them around him, time in his presence. Not to go back to the first point too much, but and not to take the whole spiritual side of things and muddy the waters in spiritual. But seeing everything is spiritual, we need to spend time in his presence that filtrates and infiltrates throughout every part of our lives. And one thing that we have maybe thrown out because of familiarity of growing up in a place where this was maybe a list of do's and don'ts is Sunday. Sunday is the Sabbath that we talk about at Redeemer here and we love. If you've been around uh, Redeemer for any time, you'll have heard Sabbath. You'll maybe have experienced a Sabbath Sunday where we just cease. We don't meet in this building and we, we cease because it's a biblical practice of rest. So this idea and understanding of Sabbath can be found in, Je- in Genesis chapter 2 where God rested and the Hebrew word for rest is Shabbat. Sabbath. In the Jewish culture was rest on a Friday where it would, rest would begin on Friday afternoon at sundown and go on till Sunday sundown as well. 24 hours of rest, ceasing. No work was allowed. Sure, the day that we probably celebrate now is Sunday. But as I said, we've grown up with this list of do's and don'ts on a Sunday. I remember not being allowed to watch TV on a Sunday because that wasn't holy, it wasn't sacred. Unless the, world, or unless the semi-final or the FA Cup final was on or the World Cup was on, then you were allowed to watch it. Don't ask me why. 
But we have, I'm sure you've got this list of what you're allowed to do on a Sunday. You weren't allowed to go to the shops. Back when I was growing up, no shops were open. Now it's a different matter. And we have this mentality of things that we were allowed to do and weren't allowed to do. And maybe you're a wee bit kind of put out and don't really enjoy Sabbath because of the historical view of Sabbath that you have in your mind. But Sabbath is about ceasing from work. It's about hitting pause on a busy and chaotic life. It's about plugging into the Father as an act of worship, resting and relying on God's goodness and that he is sufficient. But that's not where it stops. It's about finding joy. It's about savoring the things in life that regenerates us, that we can celebrate creativity, we can celebrate creation and cuisine. Making it less about what we do and more about, sorry, making it less about more than, making it less about what we don't do and more about what, doing what brings us life and joy. See, the practice of Sabbath is extremely important to God. So much so that he calls it holy. You can see there in the fact that then God rested on verse three, then God rested, blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all work of creating that he had done. This is the first time anywhere that anything is called holy in the Bible. And as a rabbi's principle, so first we need to take notice of this because it's extremely important. This rest, this time out is holy. And it's hard to take the time out when it all seems to be as our to-do list gets to increase. But this practice of Sabbath is something that rejuvenates, refreshes, and reinvigorates us to continue for the next six days of work. In, Genesis, or in Exodus chapter 20, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, he actually does, he makes a big deal about the Sabbath. It's actually the longest recorded verse in that section of Scripture about the Ten Commandments because he wants to put the weight of importance on it. Sabbath is the longest commandment. And one writer argues that God does this and he grounds the Sabbath in creation because he realizes the frailty, the frazzledness, the limitations of man. He knows that we would experience fatigue, burnout, anxiety, busyness, worn down immune systems, anger, confusion, and frustration if we don't rest. And we need to break free from this culture of and this lie the culture has set that you need to do more, that you need to buy more, that you need to gain more of that promotion, that you need to earn the Father's love, that you need to prove yourself, that you need to get that bigger house, that you need to be able to offer your kids everything that you didn't have and more. The thought and the lie that you need to get everything that you want. And when we break that rat race mentality, you begin to find peace in the world again. You begin to bring order to your chaotic, busy lifestyle. And the other thing is the fact that we can learn so much from Martha this morning. Just want to finish with just this thought. Martha, just as Jesus was inviting Martha into a countercultural situation and a moment in life that goes against everything that we that they knew about, God is inviting us extending us the same invitation into something countercultural this morning, rest into his presence.
So why don't we take a break from the busyness of life? Instead of choosing to step into this uh, busy lifestyle, we're going to take a break. We're going to take an actual breath. And in the moment of rest, we get to see at the presence and the feet of Jesus. We get to experience something that goes against culture. We get to experience Jesus in all of his holiness, allowing his presence to infiltrate and to permeate every part of our being, our life, allowing everything to become spiritual because he's concerned about our, all of our lives, not just part of it. And we get to break the rat race mentality, choosing to step into this unique moment in time, which is holy and blessed, and practice a t- practice table, the table that Christ is hosting right now. So God, join us in this midst. Join us and allow us to experience your presence, Lord, as we just hit pause for once. God, help us to see Sabbath and rest in a way that brings life, rejuvenation, and allows us to just mirror the example that you set for us as you noticed our frailty our humanity, and you modeled something that you never needed to model for us, Lord, because you don't need to rest, but you knew that we needed to. So God, help us to to rest in your presence. Help us to hit pause, to experience your goodness. Remind us to invite your presence into our everyday ordinary lives. And just as we go about and head into work on Monday, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would just even take this this pause and remember that you're inviting us to enter into a spiritual life, which everything matters to you, where everything is spiritual. So God gives us lenses to see on Monday what you're doing how you're showing up in our work and how we can love and worship you even at our computer. We thank you for those in the room which are just tapping into the next generation. We pray for wisdom. We pray for patience. We pray for just your presence just to rest on them as they walk into those spaces, Lord, that they would see, the children would see that you're there that there's something different. Lord, as they invest in the next generation, Lord, I pray, Lord, for 
just a release of your presence and your, and your wisdom and love into those places and spaces. But God, as we, as we come, help us to be Mary's who sit at your feet right now. Who sit around your table and delight in your presence and teach us just to draw near to you in this time as we break bread and drink wine. In Jesus' name.